So we're going to transition to talking about um, the closing sermon out of our series called The Signs of Generosity. And so if you are uh, just joining us, or maybe you haven't been here for every single week, um, that's okay. We're glad that you're with us this morning. Um, and so what we've been doing is looking at the signs of generosity, and the idea is calculating the cost of trusting God with our money and recognizing that we can trust him with our money as we trust him in all things. And so what I want to do is, because not all of us have been here every single week, I mean, I have, it's my job, but not all of us have been here every single week, um, I want to make sure that we can kind of recap where we've been and then uh, bring us up to speed so we know where we're going this morning. And so we're using these different mathematical signs to teach us different principles of living a life of generosity. And so the sign of generosity, the first mathematical sign that we used was the equal sign. And our first week, what we talked about is that you cannot serve both money and God. They are not equals. This idea that we try to hope that money will provide for our future security, and, and we try to build our treasures here on earth, hoping it will provide for our future security. But if we pursue the love of money too much, that can be a root of all types of evil, and it can be something that the drive for more money can actually cause us to go into poverty or, or be overwhelmed or be in debt and all these different things. So what we talked about that day is that if you try to serve money, then it might, we hope it provides our future security, but we also recognize that it can lead to poverty as well. Whereas if we serve God wholeheartedly, we recognize that he, out of his poverty, he sent Jesus, who through Jesus's poverty, we then can become rich, 2 Corinthians 8. And that doesn't purely mean financially. What that means is the riches of a relationship, a right relationship with God and eternity with him, that we serve a, rags, a riches to rags God in a rags to riches world, who came from the riches of a manger, or the riches of heaven that Jesus sent into the rags of a manger so that we may have eternal life. And so we recognize that we hope money provides future security, but we know God provides our eternal security. You cannot serve both. They are not equals. The next week that we talked about was the plus symbol and this idea that if we recognize that God is uh, the one that we serve wholeheartedly, then we also recognize that everything has been Oh, everything is owned by God. So because everything is owned by God, we must add a stewardship mindset to everything loaned by God. What that means is that with the parable of the talents, it wasn't the servants that were the owners of the money. They were entrusted that money by the master. And so we use the, the acronym ADD for how the servants responded properly with what they've been given as stewards of the gifts that they have. Now, we've all been given different Yes, money, but also skills and abilities and relationships. And how do we add a stewardship mindset to each one of those things? What does the acronym ADD stand for? The, the A talks about this idea of accepting the responsibility, that we accept that God has given us certain gifts. We don't hide those gifts. We accept that he's given us certain relationships. We don't denounce those relationships. We accept what he's given us, and we take responsibility for that. Then we demonstrate accountability. We, we come before the master. We come before God and say, Lord, this is what you've given me. And, and I'm going to give back to you or show you what I've been able to bring about with what you've given me. I trust you. So I'm demonstrating accountability. Just as the servants went before the master and said, Lord, you gave me five and I've given you five more. Lord, you gave me two. I'm going to give you two more. Or Lord, you gave me one and I hit it. And now that one is going to be taken. But then lastly, the last D is this idea of delighting in God's rewards. That we delight in God's rewards because Matthew 25, 21, as the master is talking to the servant who had five and made five more, he says, 
Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a little. I will entrust you with much. Come and share in your master's happiness. Come and delight in the rewards of the master. So because everything is owned by God, we must add that stewardship mindset to everything loaned by God. Then the week three, we started talking, we used the division symbol, and, and what we talked about this week was the idea of the tithes and offerings, what it means to s- divide money and give it to God and trust him for the rest. So the word that we used is by dividing the best from the rest, we put God to the test and live a life that is blessed. And it's rhyming, so don't say that 10 times fast because I can't. Um, But it's this idea that through Malachi 3, that we trust God with our tithes and offerings. We divide what's God's, and then we live off of the rest. And he says in Malachi 3.10 to test me in this. So we don't test God in other areas, but in Malachi 3.10, he says, test me in this. And will I not bless you? And looks at 10 and 11, talks about how he blesses the people. And in verse 12, it closes with this idea that he says, and the nations around you will call you blessed. So by talking about tithes and the 10% to the local church in the same way that Malachi 3 talks about, you bring the tithe to your storehouse, to that place of worship. For us, it's this idea that by dividing the best, our, the 10% we give to God from the rest, we put God to the test and live a life that is blessed. And then last week, we used a subtraction symbol. And we talked about this idea that when we subtract the slavery of debt from our lives, we are free to live with contentment and generosity. When we get out from under the yoke of credit card debt or consumer debt or educational debt or or whatever it may be, when we subtract that kind of debt from our lives, we are free to live with contentment, to not have to compare ourselves to others, to not go into debt in order to compare ourselves with what other people have and trying to live up to their expectations or, or try to find our identity in what we own rather than whose we are, which is Jesus. And so we look at this idea that once we subtract that, we're able to live with contentment, but then also generosity, because then we're not trying to hold on to things for ourselves. We're figuring out ways in which, as First Timothy 6 said, we can be rich in good deeds, because godliness with content is great gain. So encourage those who are rich in this world to be generous. And we talked about how some of us might not think we're rich, but in compared to the billions of people that live off of $2 a day, you and I, we are the rich ones. So when it talks about that, that we have a responsibility and the ability to live with contentment and generosity, but that's really hard if we have the slavery of debt above us. So we went through the debt snowball very briefly, like my basic understanding of it last week. If you don't know about that or would like to look more into it, uh, there's Financial Peace University is a, is a great curriculum. And the debt snowball is the, the second baby step out of seven. So it's a really great tool in order to um, allow for slavery of debt for that to be subtracted from our lives. So today, we're going to look at the, the time symbol, the multiplication idea. But before we got, go into our main point, will you join me in a word of prayer as we ask God to meet us and teach us what it is he has for us? Heavenly Father, I thank you for, again, for this morning. I thank you for each person in this room, whether they've been here for years or whether they're really new, Lord. We thank you that each person that is here in this room or potentially listening online at another time is exactly who you want to hear this message at this time, Lord. So I pray that I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a powerful way through your word, and that we would all draw closer to you and live the life of impact that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Now, in the very beginning of this series on week one, I shared uh, a story of when um, I'd saved up money. It was the first time that I really enjoyed having money because I saved up $83 to buy a Lego Ice Planet base, and I just thought it was the greatest thing. And I was so excited for it, and I played with it. I also had like the monorail, which was like an actual moving monorail, which blew my mind. And we had a shuttle there. So it was, I loved Legos, and I loved playing with them. And I remember that there was a time, a couple years later, in which I remember going home, and my mom, at this time my parents were already separated, so my mom just kind of shared, you know, I, I took all your Legos, and I gave them to another family who was in need. And I recognized as a 34-year-old adult that that was a really nice thing. But as like a 12-year-old boy, I was not happy with this decision. I was like, that's my stuff, and, and why, holding, why are you giving it away? Like, had I played with it recently? No, but what if I wanted to? Like, it's one of those where I wanted to hold on to this stuff for myself without recognizing that I could be a blessing to someone else, or, or that stuff out of the surplus of the toys and the things that I had, I wasn't using that. But out of my surplus, out of the extra toys I'm not even using, we can bless other people. But I think that's not just something that I struggle with as a 12-year-old. I think that's something that we can struggle with in our culture and, and in whatever age we may be. That I read recently that in order for someone to feel comfortable, this was a, a study or, or something that kind of shared, in order for someone to feel comfortable giving away 5% of their salary, not the 10% that God asks us to and the 10% that we were able to do, but to give 5%, that for people to feel comfortable with that kind of level of giving, that they said that the number of, the number of income they would have to have to feel comfortable with that would be $20 million. Like it wasn't until they had $20 million like in the bank or whatever it may be that then that's when they'd be able to feel like they could give 5% to other people. Why? It's because we have this innate thought that because money is tangible and because it's something we can hold, that it's something that we can trust greater than God. That it's this idea that we trust more in our bank statement and what it says than banking on the statement that God can provide and is faithful that we have this idea that because it's tangible, that we need to have money. And if we don't, that we're going to struggle, we're going to have issues. And yes, money is an important thing. Money is not a bad thing in and of itself. But how we use it and the place that money has in our lives is what determines whether it's a good thing for us or a bad thing or a stumbling block. So the main point that we have, since we recognize that it may be $20 million until someone feels comfortable with five. It's this idea of wanting to keep more stuff for ourselves. And, and the scripture we'll talk about in a few moments talks about the idea of building bigger barns for ourselves and our surplus. And so the main point for us this morning is the idea that by practicing the signs of generosity, we reject the temptation to build bigger barns and we accept God's invitation to multiply our resources to build his kingdom. I'm going to say it again because it's a long one. By practicing the signs of generosity, we reject the temptation to build bigger barns. That if we live according to those, we're going to reject that. And instead, we will accept the invitation to multiply our resources to build God's kingdom. And so as we dive into that, I'm going to ask you to turn to, to Luke chapter 12. We kind of alluded to it just a moment ago, but it's going to be Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 13. We're going to read 13 through 21 together. And so the first part of your notes there that we're going to tackle is this temptation that we have to build bigger barns. The temptation to build bigger barns. And so 
The reason we have that temptation, there's, there's one, uh, there's a couple reasons. One of them we're going to look at first is this worldview of scarcity. This worldview of scarcity. This idea that there's not enough stuff, so I better grab everything I can now, otherwise I won't have enough later on. This worldview of scarcity. And we're going to dive in to Luke chapter 12, verse 13 and 15 to get this idea started. Someone in the crowd, verse 13 says, someone in the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? Then he said to them, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. Let me repeat that last line again. Life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. No matter how hard we want to store up more things for ourselves, no matter how big we want our garage to be, no matter how many cars we have, no matter how many TVs we have, many people may have more TVs than people in their house, no matter what we try to own, life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. That it's not as much about what we possess tangibly, but it's about the salvation that we possess because of Jesus Christ in eternity. And so we look at this idea that this worldview of scarcity shows up because when the man says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the, the inheritance with me. What this is kind of alluding to and, and what we think this means is, is the idea that there were the, the culture was a culture of primogeniture. All that means is it's a fancy way of saying firstborn. So this culture of primogeniture means that it's someone that the firstborn son would receive the lion's share of the inheritance, whereas the second, third, and fourth sons would then have to kind of divide what was left over. And so I'm imagining that this, this looks like this is the story of, of someone who was a second son who, you know, was tired of the same hand-me-downs and tired of the same toys that their older brother got and tired of the same things. And so he's saying, I don't want to be the second born or the third born anymore. I want to have the inheritance that is equal to my brothers. And so teacher, recognizing that Jesus is a teacher and Jesus is a wise, wise man, he says, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Tell me, tell him that I need more than what I'm allotted to have. Tell him I need more. The disease that you and I struggle with, the disease of more, stems from this worldview of scarcity. If you don't, if you haven't can't picture what scarcity looks like, uh, one picture you might want to might want to think about is you know think about in ancient Rome and the idea that when the people were really poor that they would toss out loaves of bread and that they would fight and claw over it. And if that's a little too you know far in the past to think through, then maybe what you might want to think about is uh, maybe Black Friday when Walmart opens and people just trample over everybody to get a 46-inch plasma screen that's going to be out of date by the time you bring it home that night. Like, it's this idea that recognizing that it's just, okay, there's not going to be enough, so I'm going to trample, I'm going to walk over people, I don't care who I have to hurt, because I have to get what I have to get, because there's not going to be enough for me if I don't. This idea of scarcity that causes us to think, whether we're kids all the way up to adults, that there's not enough, so I better grab what I can, hold on to it, and build a bigger barn to save it in case there's a rainy day. We see that Richard Rohr, he wrote, a, he wrote a devotion that talks about America's unhealthy economics and politics persist because we largely operate out of a worldview of scarcity, which leads to actual scarcity, that the mindset of scarcity leads to actual scarcity. 
this, uh, there is not enough land or health care, water, money, and housing for all of us, and there are never enough guns to keep us safe. This idea that he's saying that there's this idea of scarcity, thinking that there's not going to be enough for us. And so just the mindset that there's not enough for us is what causes people to hoard, to hold on, and to not help others, which then in turn does cause there to be scarcity because now there's people who don't have enough. And so this idea that we see here is this worldview of scarcity. Jesus, tell this man to give me my inheritance because what I've been allotted isn't enough. Or, hey, I want to get more things and I want to accumulate more possessions, even though we see that life does not consist in an abundance of possessions. We still want to accumulate. We want to add. We want to increase because we're afraid that there's going to be a rainy day someday and we want to hold on and we find our security in money rather than finding our security in Jesus. Gandhi says that there is enough for our need but there's not enough for our greed. That the earth, God has given us a world, the earth, that there is enough food for everyone on this planet to be able to eat and be alive. Yet because of greed, people who are in power or people who are rich or people who are in these positions, they would hoard that for themselves or sell it off to make money and so then there's actually not enough for everyone because the, the, the ones in power are holding on to it to a degree that those who are not in power can never have some. That there's this scarcity mindset. Oh, I'd never have enough money. I'll never be able to have enough grain. I'll never be able to have enough stuff. And so I better keep going and don't worry about who I trample. I better just keep moving forward because as I do so, I'll be able to finally feel after $20 million that maybe I'll be able to give 5% away. This idea that scarcity becomes scarcity, that there's enough for our need. God has provided enough, but there's not enough for our need, for our greed, I'm sorry. So we look at the worldview of scarcity. The next thing we want to tackle is this problem multiplication. That multiplication can be a great thing, but there's a problem multiplication that we need to navigate and address in order to conquer the temptation or reject the temptation to build bigger bonds for our own lives. So let's read together verse 16 through 21 of Luke 12. And Jesus told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. That the problem we face with multiplication is that when we do experience a multiplication of resources, when we do experience a surplus, the natural tendency will be to want to build bigger barns to hold on to it. The natural tendency will want us to just hoard and hold rather than to see where we can give and bless. And so because of that natural tendency, we need to recognize in ourselves that we can often fall into this problem multiplication. And for some of us, maybe that's why we haven't been able to experience as much of it because God wants to give to those that he can entrust to be able, just like he did with the parable of the talents in Matthew 25, he gives people what they can, he can entrust them with. 
And so this is not a health and wealth gospel. This is the idea that when we have more and a surplus, what do we do with it? The old preacher Charles Spurgeon has a devotional called Mornings and Evenings. And, and I remember a specific one that he did on Philippians 4, 10 through 13. We referenced this verse, uh, these verses last week, the idea that Paul says, I know what it's like to be content in every circumstance. I know what it's like to be in want. And I know what it's like to have plenty. And I can be content. And I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. And we, we hit on that. And, and Charles Spurgeon talks about the idea of the difference between being in plenty and being in want. And how those two dynamics, what that actually impacts with our lives. He specifically says, when we have much of God's providential mercies, it often happens that we have but little of God's grace and little gratitude for the bounties we have received. We are full and we forget God. Satisfied with earth, we are content to do without heaven. Rest assured, it is harder to know how to be full than it is to know how to be hungry. So desperate is the tendency of human nature to pride and forgetfulness of God. Man, there's two lines that we've said this morning. One from Jesus, life is not consistent in abundance of possessions. And then one from Charles Spurgeon that says, we are full and we forget God. Satisfied with earth, we are content to do without heaven. I don't know about you, but those words can be like a gut punch and a challenge and a struggle. So the problem multiplication can happen when we get the multiplied resources and then we want to build a bigger barn. But that's, we want to talk about the practice of science of generosity. We can reject that. So what is it that we are accepting instead? What we're accepting is the invitation to build God's kingdom. The invitation to build God's kingdom. I'm going to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 35, as you are turning there, we're looking at this idea of what would it actually look like? That this may sound nice to hear that we can have trust that God will provide, that we can reject scarcity worldview, that we can reject the problem of multiplication, but what would that actually look like? What can that, what's a story, a tangible idea of what that is? And we see that in Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 35. And so instead of a worldview of scarcity, we see from this passage, not a worldview of scarcity, but a worldview of abundance. A worldview of abundance. And here's how we see that, starting in verse 32 of Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Like, being able to see... A group of people that did not look at possessions as their own. Being able to see a group of people that were willing to give to others and not recognize the scarcity, but recognize that there's an abundance, that God has given us more than we can ever hope for or imagine, that God has provided for us more than just our need, but he gives us our daily bread so that we can, as Proverbs 30 says, we don't want to have too much and forget God, but we also don't want to have too little and dishonor his name. So Proverbs 7 through 9 says, give me my daily bread. Just give me enough. And so when, Matthew, when Jesus tells us how to pray, Matthew 6, he says, give us our daily bread. So he gives us what we need, not always what we want, but he gives us what we need. And so if we trust in him and we trust that he can do that and he has done that, then, then we live in a worldview of abundance. We look at the idea that 
the people were able to have this great power and the, the continuing to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And people were added to their number, yes, because they were preaching the Lord Jesus, but also because they could see what a community looks like that actually doesn't hold on to their possessions and see what a community looks like that actually lives out of not scarcity, but out of abundance. But out of the surplus, they don't hold on and build bigger barns. They figure out, how can I build God's kingdom? How can I bless rather than hoard? How can I give rather than tighten my grip? We see Charles Eisenstein says, in our current money system, it is mathematically impossible for more than a minority of people to live in abundance because the money creation process maintains a system of scarcity. All that's saying is that the way our economics are set up, there's always going to be people at the top of the pyramid. There will always be CEOs that make exponentially more than those that work under them. There will always be those who are lenders to those who are borrowers. There will always be those who are rich and that there will be those who are poor because we live, as we heard earlier, in a mindset and a worldview of scarcity. So at every level of that pyramid, there's people who are going to want to hold on and keep it to themselves rather than people who receive it. And then just like the boy who brings his lunch in the parable, or not the parable, in the feeding of the 5,000, just like being able to give back to Jesus, trusting him to provide and recognize that as he does, he takes it, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he multiplies it. We see that there is... Richard Rohr continues, he says that only a personal experience of unconditional, unearned, and infinite love and forgiveness can move you from the normal worldview of scarcity to the divine world of infinite abundance. That's when the doors of mercy blow wide open, and that's when we begin to understand the scale-breaking nature of grace. When we have experienced true personal love that is beyond anything that we can imagine, unconditional, unearned, to the point where it breaks the scales of what grace really does. That it's not about how much we can do versus how much God has done. It's this scale-breaking dynamic that it's only because of what God has done that we have anything, that we have eternal life. That maybe for some of us here, we grew up in a place, and maybe for some of you, you grew up in a home where there wasn't food on the table, and you weren't sure how ends were going to meet. You weren't sure where the next meal was coming from or the clothes that you were going to get or, or the shoes were worn down. And, and you weren't sure even if you're going to be able to stay living where you were living because of financial distress. And so growing up in that mindset, of course, the natural tendency is that whenever you begin to make money that you're going to hold on to it. Because you experienced scarcity, you were going to exhibit scarcity. The same thing may happen with your, with your relationship with your, with your parents or family members when it came to love. Maybe you never received that kind of love or that approval or that affirmation. So whenever you do, you're going to hold on to it because you experience scarcity. And so you're going to hold on to that. And then it's going to become like an addiction that you're going to want to get more approval, more power, more glory, more success, more possessions, more things to fill your bigger barns. Because you experience scarcity, but the only way to break down this dynamic of scarcity is, is what we hear, see here is that this unconditional, 
unearned personal experience of love and grace that cannot come from anyone here on this earth. It can only come through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And it can only come when we realize the scale-breaking nature of grace, that it is by no good deeds that we're able to have a right relationship with him. And it is only by the good deeds of Jesus Christ who knew no sin but became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That is not he who loved us, or so it's not we that loved him first, but he who loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. That it's a scale-breaking nature of grace. And when that scale has been broken, so has the mindset and worldview of scarcity. And in its place becomes a worldview of abundance that we have been given more than we can ever hope for or imagine. Not maybe everything that we might want, but we've given everything we need so that we in turn can give to others who are in need. And so we look here that yes, we have a worldview of abundance as opposed to scarcity, but we also have an opportunity of multiplication in contrast to the problem that we saw in the Luke 12 passage. The opportunity of multiplication is what we see in verses 33 through 35. 33b says, And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. That there were no needy persons among the body of Christ. That everyone was experiencing abundance. No one was experiencing scarcity any longer. That there were no needy persons. And that happens because when multiplication comes, there's the problem multiplication, building bigger barns, but there's the opportunity that we have to be able to give to those who are in need. Because yes, we have bigger barns that we could save for a rainy day, but we must also recognize that for someone, today is that rainy day. And we can help bless and come alongside and encourage and provide for them. That they didn't see their possessions as their own, but they saw all their things that they've been given to as, people, as things given from God because he owns everything in the first place. And so they wanted to add a stewardship mindset to everything loaned by him. And so we see that Richard War continues on. He says that in every multiplication story, in every story in the Bible, when Jesus, for example, the feeding of the 5,000, again, they take it, they, he, the lunch, they bring their lunch. The boy brings a lunch and says he gave it to Jesus. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, and he multiplied it, and there was enough, more than enough. Same thing with the feeding of the 4,000 a chapter later. Here's how Richard Rohr describes it. He says, in every multiplication story, the gospel writer emphasizes that there is always much left over, which should communicate the point that the universe always has more than enough of itself to give if the portals of mind and heart are left open. That last statement, in order to clarify what that's saying, is that there's always enough. There's always enough left over as long, because God has provided, there's always enough left over as long as people are open and their hearts are open to giving and trusting in his abundance rather than fearing the world of scarcity. And so we look at this idea of the feeding of the 5,000, and I think we shared this idea before that there wasn't just barely enough to feed the 5,000 men, not including women and children, so the number was greater. There was not just enough that there were 12 basketfuls of bread left over. Again, it's not barely, it's an overabundance. And I imagine that there were 12 disciples, right? So I imagine that when there's 12 basketfuls left over, that I imagine it's the leaders that Jesus said, you feed them. So 
He probably was also saying, you pick up the leftovers. So each disciple is coming. He's taking the bread of different people. And, and all of a sudden, his basket is full. And there were 12 basketfuls left over for the 12 disciples that were there. And they had tangible, physical proof held in their hands that our God is not a God of scarcity, but a God of abundance. That God is a God of multiplication to build his kingdom, not so that we could build bigger barns, but so that we could build his kingdom. That there were tangible proof that God is a God of abundance who provides so that we could overcome scarcity and that we could trust in his abundance. Now, I want to share a brief story of a girl um, named Haley, Hallie, uh, Hattie Mae Wyatt. Pictures here. This picture, um, she was about in the 1880s. So the reason I'm sharing this picture, I'm going to read some of this here because I want to make sure I get some of the details right. But the, there's a pastor at her church uh, whose name was Russell Conwell. And so this story of Hattie Mae Wyatt, you see here, is a six-year-old girl who lived near Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia um, in Pennsylvania. Now, the Sunday school at her church it was very, very crowded, and she was afraid to go in one day. So the minister, Russell Conwell, told her that one day they would have buildings big enough to allow everyone to attend. She said, I hope you will, and it is so crowded, I'm afraid to go in there alone. But he replied, when we get the money, we will construct one large enough to get all the children in. Two years later, in 1886, Hattie May died. But after the funeral, Hattie's mother gave the minister a little bag they had found under their daughter's pillow containing 57 cents in change that she had saved up. Alongside it was a note in her handwriting to help build bigger buildings so that more children can go to Sunday school. So the minister took those 57 cents, and you know, it might be quarters, it might have been dimes, it might have been nickels, but he changed it all so that it was 57 pennies. And then he went and he basically sold the pennies and said, you know, who would be willing to buy this penny and how much would you be willing to give as a way to honor the memory of Hattie Mae and to be able to build a building for more kids to go to Sunday school. From that, from that 57 cents, it multiplied into $250. Coming out of that $250, then what happened is he changed the $250 into pennies, and then he ended up selling those pennies as well in order to just keep this idea of multiplying the 57 cents that Hattie Mae had dedicated towards the building of a bigger building so that more kids can go to Sunday school. He shared this sermon 26 years after she passed away, and it was a sermon called The History of the 57 Cents. And what Russell Conwell shared was that out of that 57 cent donation, which then became $250, which then became enough to buy the house right near the property in order to make, uh, have a school there and a Sunday school there, they also were able to then from there be able to, and I want to read it correctly here, they were able to have a church with a membership of over 5,600 people, a hospital where tens of thousands of people had been treated, a university in which 80,000 young people had gone through, and 2,000 people going out to preach the gospel. All of it happened because Hattie Mae Wyatt invested her 57 cents and God multiplied it. And so where is this place? This place is called Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia. The name recently, or that around this time, the name changed to Grace Baptist Temple, and this became Temple University. So Temple University, the Temple Owls, if you know their mascot, the reason they're called the Owls is because uh, the, the minister here also became the president of the university in the very, very beginning, and he would teach people who worked all throughout the day. He, it was like the night school. And so he would teach them at night, and they were considered night owls. And so the Temple University Owls is 
came from the land that was there. It was from where this church was originally, and then it was purchased with the money from this girl, Hattie Mae, that it continued to multiply so that lives would be changed, and that 2,000 people were sent out to the gospel, that thousands would be part of a church, and then there's a hospital right nearby that's Good Samaritan Hospital that has treated thousands upon thousands of people, and then it has this impact that has been multiplied because one girl gave 57 cents and was willing to let God multiply, and God did so. So it's this idea, this opportunity of multiplication. So the last point for us this morning is this idea that that's, that's what we've talked about this whole series. That's kind of the series, and we're going we're gonna to take a pullback here and pull back to a 40,000-foot view of what we've been doing for the series. And the Signs of Generosity series, the Signs of Generosity are issues of the heart. Is this a financial series? Yes, this has been a financial series in which we're talking about money, but is it only a financial series? No. This is a series about our heart. This is a series about what do we love most and how does that impact how we live? And so we look at week one, the idea that you cannot love both money and God. They are not equals. This sermon is a sermon about what is your first love? What is that which you put first? Because maybe for you say it's not money, but maybe for you it's approval from other people. Maybe for you it's popularity. Maybe it's um, power. It's, it's prestige. It's fame. It's glory. It's success. It may be a myriad of different things that is our, our idol here. And so our first love is either the idol or it's God. You cannot serve both. They are not equals. So we are either trusting in God as the one true God of pursuing him wholeheartedly, or we're asking him to get us our idols, which is that which we truly worship most. We're either saying, God, I want all of you, or God, help me get X, Y, or Z. And so we look at this, this fact that we cannot serve both money or idols or anything and God. They are not equals. This first week was a week about our first love. The next week was about our mindset. It was the idea of adding a stewardship mindset. If we trust that God is our first love, then we can add, recognize that everything is owned by God in the first place. So we add a stewardship mindset to everything loaned by God. And so then this becomes about our mind. It becomes about how we think about different things and how that impacts how we act and how we do things. So then the third week, the one about dividing, that by dividing the best from the rest, we put God to the test and live a life that is blessed. That one was a series or a sermon about trust. Do we trust that God will take care of us? If we know that he's our first love and we recognize that that changes the way we think in our minds, do we trust him to actually tangibly put that to practice? So then after we look at the idea of trust, last week was about subtraction, that by subtracting the slavery of debt from our lives, we are free to live in contentment and generosity. And because of that, that's a message about our discipline. Are we disciplined to change the way we live based on what we think and how we respond to God's love, that he's our first love? And so we recognize that it's because of our discipline that God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, love, and self Discipline, And so looking at discipline when it comes to our debt and our finances. And then this morning, this last one, this idea of multiplying by practicing the signs of generosity, we reject the temptation to build bigger barns and we accept the invitation to multiply our resources to build God's kingdom. That is a series of our sermon about impact. All of them, first love, mindset, trust, 
discipline impact are all issues of the heart because if we don't get this first one right, like math, it has to build upon itself. So this series has been building upon itself that if we don't get this first one right, then we're going to be missing. Everything else will be slightly askew. That if you ever go like on a boat or orienteering or anything like that, that if you have a direction, you're going to go this way. If you just go off two degrees to the other direction and then you keep going in that direction for miles, you're going to be miles away from where you intended to go. That all it takes is for us to be just a couple degrees off of recognizing that our first love has to be our first love, has to be God. And so it's only if we get that off just a little bit it could, and we live that way for the rest of our lives, it can cause us to be such a great distance from where he has intended us to be. So this first issue is an issue of the heart. What is it that you love most? What is it that you pursue most? What is it that we ask God to give us that thing rather than we ask God to give us more of himself? Because if we don't get this right, like the beginning of math, if we don't get this right, the rest of our lives are going to be at varying degrees from where he has us. We cannot serve both money and God. They are not equals. These are all issues of the heart. And so as we close this morning, I just want to use a brief uh, dynamic, which maybe you feel like you are the um, rich young ruler in Matthew 19, someone who says, I've done all the right things, that he says, Lord, what do I need to do to inherit life? eternal life. says, well, Jesus says, follow the commandments. The man says, which ones? Jesus says, well, don't steal, don't kill, don't bear false witness, honor your father and mother, love your neighbor as yourself. He says, okay, I've done all these since I was a boy. And then Jesus says, well, if you want to be complete or perfect based on which uh, translation it is, and, and then in Luke, the version there says, if you want, one thing that you lack is that you need to sell all your stuff Give it to the poor and follow me. And so the man walks away very sad, for he was a wealthy man. And what that shows us is that, yes, Jesus told him to follow all the commandments. And he listed out the commandments that had to do with man's relationship with other men. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. There were man-to-man commandments. But what he didn't say and what Jesus looked past that and said, oh, you say you followed all those things, but I know your heart. And your heart is that you're breaking the very first commandment in the first place. The first commandment that has to do not with man to man, but between man and God. And this idea that you shall not have any other gods before me. You shall not make idols. You shall keep the Sabbath, but you shall not have any other gods before me. So he automatically looked to the core of his struggle. And does that mean that he's asking all of us to sell all of our possessions and to give them to the poor? If that's your idol, maybe. Maybe he's saying that that has to be the one thing we need to let go of in the same way that if someone has the idolatry of some sort of addiction, they have to cast away all those things that might cause that, right? So I don't know that for you, but what I know is that for this specific thing, it's not the false hermeneutic or the false Bible study method would just be to say that Everyone do that because that's what he said here. What Jesus was doing was looking at this man's idol, this man's struggle, this man's thing that he puts on the same pedestal as God and claims that because of that, he's okay. But he says, that's the one thing in your life that you need to get rid of. That's the one issue of your heart that is eliminating your first love being Jesus and being God. So get rid of that and follow me. For us this morning, as we close, what is that one thing in your life that you put in the place of God? 
What is that one thing that you hinge your identity upon? And maybe it is money, and it's what you own. Maybe it's something else. But recognize that we cannot trust in our bank statements, but we bank on the statement that God is good, that he loves you, and that he sent his son Jesus, that through Jesus' poverty, we might experience true riches, the 2 Corinthians 8 says. What is it in your life? And if all of us wrestle with that and we pray to that and we move through that, what would it look like for us to be, to continue being an Acts 4 type of church that gives and is generous with abundance and the opportunity of multiplication to change lives? Yes, within the church, there's no needy people within the church, but also in the community and also in our city and also in our state and also in our nation and also in our world. It starts with the heart. And so let us pray that God would speak to us, that we would be cut to the heart, as Acts 2.37 says, and hear whatever it is he has for us. Father, we thank you so much that you are here with us, and we thank you, Lord, that you love us. We recognize, God, that we fall short. We recognize that we ask for forgiveness for times in which we have put anything other than you at the center of our lives. For we know that the only foundation The only true foundation is the one that's already been laid in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for us this morning. I pray for anyone here that is on this journey in which perhaps they have placed something else in that place that only you can be in our lives. And because of that, Lord, they've recognized that their life is not where they've wanted it to be. And and if they're honest, it's not where you've wanted it to be. And so Lord, I pray for conviction and encouragement that there can be another path. I pray for all of us, Lord, that we would not try to build bigger barns because of a fear of scarcity, but rather we would build your kingdom out of the abundance that we've experienced because of the life-changing, unearned, scale-changing idea of grace that we've experienced because of Jesus Christ. Lord, cut us to the heart this morning. Reveal the areas in which we fall short but also help us to see that no matter how far we've fallen down, that you are with us and that you could guide us and you could pull us out and you could save us and you can rescue us from the miry muck and set our feet upon the rock. Lord, speak to our hearts this morning. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll have an opportunity for prayer in just a moment, but before we do... Let's worship God together through song. And if you just need to wrestle with something, just wrestle with it. But let's turn our attention to God through song, through prayer, through meditation, whatever you need to do. And then afterwards, uh, we'll close our service with an opportunity if you need prayer to come forward. But whatever you need to do in response, worship him in that way right now. You know, this morning, I hope that as you leave, that you recognize that you are prayed for, cared for, and loved before you walk into this room. That whether this is your first time, you've been here for years, that we're grateful that you're here with us this morning. We also hope that you know that this, we want this to be a house of prayer, a place in which if you have prayer requests, that you would feel free to come forward and ask for prayer. That you feel free to come forward and just say, yes, maybe it has to do something with the message. And other times, maybe it's just because life is really tough right now and you just want a brother or sister in the Lord to come alongside you. 
So if you are someone who is in need of prayer, please come forward. I would love to pray with you. If you're someone that just wants to talk after the sermon or, or say hi, please feel free to, to come forward and we can connect. But before you leave, if nothing else, I just want to, to say something that's very simple, but maybe we gloss over it sometimes. And it's just these three words. God loves you. The almighty God who created the heavens and the earth, that God loves, not likes, not tolerates, loves you. Yes, the entire world, but, but you with your sins, your struggles, your wounds, your heartaches, and your victories and your joys. You, God loves you. And may you allow that love, that first love, to change how we live, not just on Sunday morning, but Monday through Saturday and every time in between. We look forward to celebrating with you and beginning our new series next week. Thank you so much for coming. Have a wonderful week. And remember that God loves you. God bless you. See you next week.